Let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter number 7. 1 Samuel chapter number 7. Let me say again what a blessing it is to be with you here tonight. Isn't the Lord good to us? I thank the Lord for meeting with us this morning. Thankful for His presence and His goodness and His grace. I tell you, I wouldn't want to go to church if God didn't show up. So let me say amen to that. I don't want to go if God ain't going to show up. I want to meet with the Lord. I love you all, amen, but that ain't why I'm coming. I'm coming because I want to hear from Him. Amen. And I trust you've came for the same reason. And uh, we want our hearts to be open to the Lord tonight. First Samuel chapter number 7. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Now, I promise you we won't read as much tonight as we did this morning. And I appreciate your patience. Time spent reading the Word of God is never time ill spent. But uh, tonight we're just going to read 12 verses here in our text, beginning in verse number 1. First Samuel chapter number 7, verse number 1. The Bible says, And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord, and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in kirjath Jerem that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that He will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Lord, speak to the hearts of these that are gathered here. Lord, I pray that you would, you know us, Lord. You know our heart. You know our life. You know what is going on in our life, the things we need, the things that we've done. Father, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would have free reign and course tonight to take your word, his sword, and wield it in our lives to deal with us after thy will. For, Lord, we know that if we're conformed unto your will and transformed, that we know, Father, that you'll be glorified and we'll get help. So we pray that you'd accomplish it in such a way that get glory only unto you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you read 1 Samuel chapter number 7, you are at what I would consider a fairly key transitional moment in the history of the children of Israel. If you were to read through the uh, history leading up to 1 Samuel, uh, you'd find that history to be the book of Judges. 
Uh, you'd find it a time of darkness and rebellion in the history of the nation of Israel. The theme of the book of Judges, and I know we're preaching out of 1 Samuel. You hang with me. We'll get there here in a moment. But the theme of the book of Judges is that of rebellion. It is really a vicious cycle of man's conduct. Uh, the children of Israel would backslide on God. God would send them an oppressor uh, that would oppress them and would uh, would treat them poorly and afflict them. Uh, they would then cry out to God, repent of their sin, uh, and God would answer and would send a judge. And that judge would come uh, and would deliver them. And there were a number of them throughout the book of Judges. Uh, Samson, of course, being one and uh, Gideon being one. You can go through and you can read uh, how that God used these uh, men and women in the history of the nation of Israel. And God would deliver the children of Israel. And then they'd have a season, a period of peace and prosperity. They'd soon forget God. And they'd backslide and the whole cycle would begin all over again. When you come to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, for a long period of time there has been no open vision, no open light or witness in the nation of Israel. The prophets are silent. Uh, the priests are scarce. Uh, Israel, religiously, there's not much going on. And then God raises up a young man by the name of Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the first, what we would consider, a national prophet over Israel. Now, there were prophets before uh, Samuel, but uh, in the sense of it being a public office, someone that is viewed as being the voice of God for the nation, Samuel is the first in a series of these men. And you would think when you read the history re leading up to this point, it seems as though they've turned a corner. It seems as though uh, after a, 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 a uh, how do I say this, horrifying loss of the Ark of the Covenant, I'll just say it that way, uh, when the Philistines took it, defeated the children of Israel in battle, uh, slew the sons of uh, the high priest Eli, uh, the nation is left sort of bereft of any witness of God, but God raises up Samuel. Samuel begins to lead them, begins to be a light unto the nation, and they undoubtedly thought to themselves, finally we are turning a corner. But when we come to chapter number 7, we find that they have still not recovered from the loss of the ark of God. You can read the prior history leading up to it. The Philistines stole the ark of God, found out they had more than they bargained for. The ark amongst them became a bringer of plagues and of heartache for them, and so they send the ark back. The children of Israel, they don't know where to bring it to. They don't know how to go about this, and so it instead just rests in the house of this man. Uh, in verse number 1 of our text, named Abinadab, uh, in Kerjath, Jerem, it just stays there. The Bible says for 20 years it stayed in that place. And the story that we have in 1 Samuel 7 is really God coming back to or bringing the nation back to Himself and God beginning once again to work in a mighty, miraculous way amongst the children of Israel. If we were to describe these times, we could maybe relate them to days that we're living in in three ways. Let me say, number one, this uh, time was a time when the ark of God was missing. And you say, preacher, why is that significant? Because the ark of God was the presence of God amongst His people. Now, God had ways of working even when the ark was not there, and that's evident from our passage. The ark was still missing whenever God uh, worked amongst them and discomfited the Philistines. God wasn't bound to only be with them. It wasn't a lucky token. It wasn't a totem uh, or a lucky symbol. But rather, it was the place that God chose in worship to sit down amongst His people to uh, deal and reckon with Israel's sins. It was a sign of the favor of God and the presence of God in a nation. And for 20 years, that sign, for 20 years, that seat has been missing in the nation of Israel. I don't know about you, but it sort of reminds me of our nation today 
that has once enjoyed a history of religious glory, of knowing God, of loving God, of serving God. And I hate to tell you this, we're living in a day where all that's left are the symbols and stories of what our nation once was. We're living in a day where all that we ever do is talk about what God used to do. Uh, I would say this, that the same God that worked in years past can still work today in our country. But we're going to have to seek Him the way that those of old sought Him. I would say it was a time when the ark of God was missing. And let me say, even uh, in the body of Christ, we are uh, struggling through days in which it seems as though we are plagued with a comfort that is so severe that it has bred apathy and disinterest in the things of God. We've got everything it takes to have church. The question is just, are we having church? we got everything imaginable it would take to have church. In fact, I'd say this, if the early New Testament church had the blessings and benefits and resources that we have today, there's no telling what they would have done with them. But now we're living in a time where we've we've got, and I'm speaking figuratively, but we've got a nation, we've got an army, uh, we've got a king, we've got laws, we've got all these things. The only problem is that presence is missing. And let me say, and I'll just echo it again, I said it in the opening remarks of this service tonight, I don't want to go to church if God ain't going to be there. Now that don't mean that every service I set in has to be the glory fallen from heaven. Uh, there's times that that's not what God is doing. I'm not saying that every time I go to church it has to be just some thrilling, enthralling experience. And I thank the Lord for those moments. That doesn't mean that every time it has to be there. But I'd say this, I want to go to a place that hungers after God, that desires for God to be there. Hey, I ain't saying there ain't going to be times when things ain't what they ought to be, but when those times come, we ought not be okay with it. It ought not become the M.O. We ought to crave after the presence of God. This was a time when the ark was missing, and the people began to notice it. Verse number 2, listen to what it says. It says, It came to pass while the ark abode in kerjath Jerem that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let me say number 2, it was a time when the assembly was lamenting. I said, what do you mean, preacher? The people were bothered by the brokenness of their nation. Listen, our nation's never going to be healed till we're bothered by the brokenness of it. Uh, a wise man once said, we'll never be broken from our sin till we're broken over our sin. And as long as we're okay with our nation being what our nation is, religiously speaking, we can't hope to accept and hope to see uh, that our nation will ever be anything different. I'm going to make this statement and then I'm going to move on because I have a sermon to preach. Uh, the greatest sin of our nation is abortion. It's abortion. We all know that. Why would we think it would be acceptable to murder millions of unborn children? And whatever petty partisan squabbling we may do, until we're willing to deal with that issue, we're not going to see our land healed. And let me say, and I'm not trying to be, listen, I'm not trying to be gloomy, but I don't know that we deserve to see our land healed until we do something about that issue. Why should we think we can wholesale, state-sponsored, manufacture the murder of unborn children and then get up, put our hand over our heart and say, God bless America. Why would He bless America? Does He bless a murderer? Does He bless a murderer? Does He bless a violence? Does He bless cruelty and bloodshed? I'd say this, we're going to have to deal with that thing. And my, the, I, I am, I, I am a, <laughs> I'm a no issue voter. There probably ain't nothing a politician can say to make me trust him. Amen. But I would say this, if there, if there is anything that does make a difference to me, it's not talk, it's action about the issue of abortion. I said it's not talk, it's action about the issue of abortion. It's action about the issue of abortion. Can I just tell you an uncomfortable truth? I'm going to. <laughs> hey, listen, people worried about gun control with the Democrats. 
And I got news for you. Gun, gun control is one of the most unpopular things in the entirety of our country. They would take our guns away if they could. But the reality is the majority of their party doesn't want them to take guns away. And so you know what it is? It's an issue they fundraise on, Brother Tim. They have no intention because they wouldn't even know how they'd go about doing it. Now, I know you don't like to believe that, but that's the truth of the matter. Years passed when they've held all the levers of government and they could have done something about it. They didn't do anything about it. Last time they did something about it was 1994 and in 96 they got slaughtered. And they learned a lesson when they did that. Now, that's not the uncomfortable truth. You probably didn't like that, but you're really not going to like what I'm about to say next. Abortion is that issue for Republicans. It's, it's a fundraising issue. If they're against it, they do something about it. They've had power to do something about it. Hey, listen, I, I, I'm not interested in all the partisan stuff anymore. I think they're all snakes. I'm just over all of it. I'm just over all of it. I'm looking for a king, and one day he's going to set things right. But short of that, I ain't interested. I ain't interested in playing along this game of politics. Politics has become this religion in our country, and I'm sick of it. It's displaced the worship of God, just as, as science falsely so-called did as well. And I'm just telling you, we can be naive, but what matters to me is not what a man says about abortion, but what he's going to do about abortion. What's he going to do about abortion? And uh, I figured I'd get you in a good, bad mood. That way I can see if I can preach you out of it. <laughs> I'm saying this. Until we come to the place we're willing to acknowledge, until we come to the place we're willing to be bothered, be bothered, it ought to keep us up at night. It ought to keep us up at night, the things that go on in our country and in our nation. As God's people, as people that know God, as people that can pray and talk to heaven, it ought to keep us up at night, the things that are going on in our country. And once God's people become bothered, that's when things begin to change. The hard truth of revival is this. Revival is not a pleasant experience. Because the thing that brings revival is an agonizing awareness of our sin and brokenness. The fruit of revival is a precious thing. But listen, it's just like chastening. Hey, no chastening for the present time seemeth to be joyous but grievous, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Hey, revival brings glorious things, but there's going to have to be some grief if we're going to see revival take place. I would say this, it was a time they were bothered, they were troubled, they recognized that something was wrong, and it was apparent that it was because the Bible says in verse number 3, whenever Samuel speaks to the nation of Israel, he makes this statement at the end of verse number 3, he says that God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now this, this chapter does not begin really by speaking about any great oppression of the Philistines, but it becomes apparent just a few verses in that evidently things weren't all hunky-dory, things weren't going well. I would say this, the enemy was getting the upper hand in the nation in that day. The enemy was getting the upper hand. Let me say it this way, it was a time when the ark was missing, the assembly was lamenting, and the adversary was oppressing. Uh, if you had just been a spectator looking from the outside in, you'd say, uh, the Israelites are losing. And by all measurable indications, they were losing. It looked like the enemy was having his will and having his way in their life. And can I tell you this? Hey, we look around us, and I understand I've read the end of the book. I understand that one day this thing wraps up with Christ sitting on a physical, literal, visible throne in Jerusalem, reigning in righteousness and in glory. But you look around at this world right now, and it's easy to get the feeling that the devil is winning. Can I say that in our lives... Uh, we may be letting the devil win in our lives. And if we are, we don't have to. We don't have to. Irrespective of whatever the, the course and arc of God's plan prophetically for this age and the age to come, and I have lots of opinions about all of that, and they're not fuzzy or ill-defined, but irrespective of that, 
Regardless concerning that, we don't have to let the devil have victory in our lives. We can let God get victory in our lives. So it was a time when the ark was missing, the assembly was lamenting, the adversary was oppressing. But thankfully, this story does not end in oppression. We've read all of it down to verse 12. We know what happened. The children of Israel get serious about serving God, and so the devil gets serious about destroying them, sends the Philistines in to try to destroy the children of Israel. They cry unto the Lord through Samuel. Samuel offers a sacrifice. God thunders from heaven, a miraculous uh, sort of thunder that uh, the Bible says discomfited. It means it troubled and bothered and confused uh, the Philistines in such a way that they were overthrown and they fled. And this whole story ends with Samuel raising a monument uh, in uh, between Mizpah and Shin and naming it Ebenezer, which means the help of the Lord. The Lord hath helped us. This is a familiar passage of Scripture. How would we define it? Well, I would say this. Uh, this is a story about a perilous moment in the history of the nation. A moment when the enemy could win, depending on what the people of God did in response. Let me say, we're living in days in this country that are perilous days. The Bible says this would happen at perilous times. i got all East Tennessee on you. Perilous. Perilous. You didn't know that's how it was spelled, did you? Perilous. Perilous times shall come. And I'd say we're living in them. We're living in perilous times. What does perilous mean? It means on the cusp of danger, but Ken. It don't just mean hard times. It means on the cusp of destruction. We are living in a nation right now that's on the cusp of destruction. You feel it in your bones just like I do. You know, man, we're heartbeat away from this thing unraveling. Blood in the streets, chaos, widespread violence. We're living in perilous times. I would say, number two, it is not only a story of a perilous moment, but it is the story of a powerful miracle. Verse number 10 says this, that the Lord thundered with great thunder on that day. You know, the psalmist likened the voice of God to the voice of many thunders. I'm glad God's voice is powerful enough to work in a people. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm glad he can speak in that still small voice and work individually in the heart and life of a believer. I'm glad when he needs to raise his voice, he can raise his voice. He can thunder amongst the nations and he can command. He can can raise up and he can tear down. He can build and he can destroy. I'm glad God is in control. And there is nothing that we are facing beyond the scope of God's capability. But then I would say this, it is a story about a perpetual monument. Verse number 12 says, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. You've probably heard that preached on. I know I've preached on it in times past. This great monument. Boy, don't we have some Ebenezers in our life. Some moments we could go back to. And you ought to have those. It ought to be that in your life, whenever God does something, that you you make a monument in your heart. What I mean is you catalog it. You fix it firmly in your mind and in your heart to remember what God has done. We ought to have those things, Brother Ken. We ought to have things we can look back on and say, boy, didn't God show up and show out in a big way on that day? Man, I praise the Lord for it. But I don't really want to preach to you on the monument tonight. I really don't want to preach to you on the nation's dysfunction, although that's certainly here in our text. I don't even really want to preach to you on the miracle tonight. Instead, I want to preach to you on this thought of the Lord's help in the nation of Israel. And really, I want to go a little further back. Notice with me the conditional nature of God's promises here in verse number 3. The Bible says this, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods 
and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only. Now what he said is if you're serious about serving God, this is how you can show you're serious about serving God. Put away the false gods, prepare your heart, serve the Lord only. And Samuel says, if you will do this, He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. He says, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Helping the Lord help you. Helping the Lord help you. Now let me make a very clear statement here before we preach. I understand all help comes from the Lord. I understand, listen, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence my help cometh. Uh, it cometh from the Lord. I understand there ain't nothing I could do in my life in and of myself. Nothing you could do in your life in and of yourself to make your life what it ought to be. I'm aware of that tonight. But I'm also aware of this. There's times that the help of God in our life is conditional. And if we want the help of God about something, there's something we're going to have to do first to allow God to help us. Let me say it again that way, to allow God. I didn't say we're earning God's help. I said we're allowing God's help. Have you ever, when you're raising your kids, and I'm sure you have, I mean, mine are a little bitty and I've already experienced this. I, I've got two types of kids. i got one that likes for me to do things for him, and i got another one that likes for me to get out of the way so that he can do things. And and uh, the one that likes for me to get out of the way so that he can do that, there are times I'll want to help him. And I'll say, now hold on a minute, son, let me help you with doing that. And he'll push my hands away and he'll say, no, I'll do it on my own. And what I'm trying to get him to do is not earn my help. I'd help him whether he wanted help or not. I, he ain't done nothing to earn, but if I'm going to help him, he has to let me help him. Let me say in our lives, there's nothing we do that earns the help of God because everything God does, he does by grace in our life. But you better believe there are times that if, if we're going to let God do something, we're going to have to take our hands off that thing and let God be the one that helps us. We're going to have to allow Him to help us. When I read this passage, as many illuminating thoughts as may be found in there, the thing that strikes me are the things that God says to Israel, if you want me to help you, and He does help them, but He says, if you want me to, there are some things you're going to have to do first. And I, I would say this in our life, and I'm not suggesting that uh, if you have problems, it's because you're disobedient Lord. I'm not suggesting if you're not getting help in a matter, it's because there's something wrong in your life. There can be a hundred reasons uh, why God might be withholding, answering something in your life that are for your good and for His glory. But I am saying this, that often in our life, if these areas are wrong, we will find them to be a hindrance to God being able to help us. So what can we do tonight to help the Lord Help us. I'd like for you to notice a few things. Look back at verse number 3. The Bible says this, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. Let me say number one tonight, if we want the Lord to help us, there must be cleansing that takes place. God cannot bless a dirty life. You know why? Because to bless a dirty life would be to endorse a dirty life. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I think you know this to be true, there ain't none of us is worthy of God's help. Every one of us, God helps us in grace. But when we're living in open rebellion against God and living in public sin and, and we're living in unconfessed iniquity against God, what message does it send if God was to swoop in and help us when there's sin in our life and we know about it and we just refuse to get that sin dealt with? I'd say this, God's a better parent than that. I hope you have been, and I trust you have been a better parent like that than that with your kids. I try to be a better parent than that with my kids. And God is a far better parent than me or you could ever hope to be. 
So if we try to be sensitive to noticing how our child behaves, not because they have to earn our help, not because they have to be worthy of our help, but rather because any help that we give them needs to be bringing them along to a place of understanding about right and wrong and justice and who God is, if we are careful and sensitive to their behavior, how much more would the God that is holiness be sensitive to those very things? Everything that God does in our life reveals something about who God is to us. And if He in our life was to allow us to set up our idols in our life, our wickedness in our life, our our, our iniquity in our life, and He was to come along and bless us and ignore that, ignore that, what He'd be doing is sanctioning our unrighteousness. And you say, preacher, you're telling me God never blesses you even when you're wrong with Him? Oh, all the time He does. Because if He gave me what I deserve, He'd snuff me out. He'd lay me low if you give me what I deserve. Uh, but I would say this, that when God works and blesses in our life, you know, God's not near as impressed with physical things as we are. He's not near as impressed with good health and a full bank account and a nice home and lots of friends as we are. God doesn't give us those things because those are what He values. God gives us those things because they are a means of coercing us changing us, manipulating us into seeing and understanding who God is in a clearer way. In other words, every good thing that God gifts... Uh, listen listen how James says. He says every good gift, every perfect gift cometh down from above. And then listen to what he calls him. He calls him the Father of lights. Isn't that an interesting title for God? I think James used that title because he wanted us to understand that as God blesses us, it's that He might shine light of who He is, His person, and who we are upon our life. He's trying to change us. He's trying to transform us. He's using those things in our life to try to make us more like Jesus Christ. Now, if that is true, and I believe we have good scriptural foundation that it is, then why would we believe that God would ignore all of that and bless our life if we have sin in our life? There's going to have to be a cleansing. In other words, we're going to have to take inventory of our life. We're going to have to look at it and say, is there anything in my life that displeases the Lord? Now, this is a healthy thing for any Christian to do. What you may find when you do that, you may sincerely search your life before God, and though none of us are perfect, you may look at it and say, you know, there's nothing in my life that God's dealt with me about. I don't believe I'm living in sin. I don't believe there's any disobedience. You say, preacher, if I search my heart and life and find out that there's no sin in it that I need to confess, it's been a waste of time. No, it hasn't, because then it gives you a boldness to face your affliction, understanding that it's the will of God for His good and your glory. But what you might find in your life as you look at your life is there might be things that your flesh has buried, things that your conscience has seared away from your awareness that the sweet Holy Ghost of God may bring back up and say, you know, this is still an issue in your life. You still need to deal with this thing. I'd say there needs to be a cleansing take place. Number two tonight, I want you to look with me at the rest of the verse. Verse number three. He says, put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you. Then he says this, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. You know, I could just, I'm not going to, man, but I could stop and preach for an hour on that. I'm not. Don't get scared. But but listen, how often do we prepare our hearts unto the Lord? When we're coming down to the house of God and want to meet with God, do we prepare our hearts? Do we pray and say, now, Lord, I'm going to church and the preacher's going to preach and the singer's going to sing and I want to hear from you. I, I want you to speak to my heart. I want you to move on my heart. Do we pray? Do we ask Him to do that? As we're coming to the house of God, are we meditating on our life and on our past week and asking God what He's been trying to tell us and what He's been trying to show us? Are we preparing our heart unto the Lord? He says, prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you 
out of the hands of the Philistines. I'd say this, there must be a cleansing, but number two, there must be consecration that takes place. Notice how he says that. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Not for the Lord. He says unto the Lord and serve Him only. Here's the dynamic. They've been worshiping all these false gods. All these Canaanite gods. All these pagan gods that had brought about all manner of wickedness into the nation. Here's what God says. He says, you want me to bless you. But the only way I'm going to bless you is if it's abundantly clear that it is me that is blessing you. And therefore, you have to put away all of these false gods out of your nation. And you have to give your heart unto me and me alone if you want my help. Can I say that separation and consecration, though these two biblical ideals are similar, they both deal with the idea of a setting apart and of cleansing. They have two different perspectives. Separation has to do with what we're stepping away from. Consecration has to do with what we're stepping unto. Separation deals with separating ourselves from unrighteousness, sin, and iniquity. But consecration has to do with stepping closer to God and committing ourselves solely and only unto Him. And I'd say this, it's been the downfall of many a person's Christianity that they separated from sin, but they never separated unto the Savior. They walked away from the wickedness they were committing but they never got any closer to God through any of it. They maintained that same casual Christianity, that same distance that they had had exhibited before. And and though they, they weren't participating in ungodliness or open sin, they were no closer to God than they had been before. Consecration for it to be a lasting thing. Separation for it to be a lasting thing. It must be both sides of it. We've got to walk away from the things that are wrong, that are unrighteous, but in doing so, if it's going to last, we've got to walk unto the Lord that loved us and bought us and saved us. He says, I want your heart unto me and me only. It's not enough to cleanse ourselves of those sins. We've got to take our heart and put it right in the hands of Almighty God. I wonder if our seeking after the Lord is coupled with a commitment, a drawing unto Him. There are so many people that are desiring for God to draw closer unto them But can I tell you this? God's desiring for them to draw closer unto Him. And He made abundantly clear how this process works. He said, draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you. You say, preacher, why is that? Because He ain't in the wrong place in the first place. He's where He ought to be. We've got to draw nigh unto Him. And so, if we want God's help, we've got to draw close to Him. You say, preacher, why is that? Well, for the reason that we said a moment ago, for, for for the inverted reason from our first point. If in the first point he won't bless a dirty life because to do so would be to sanction it, then why will he only bless a consecrated life? If if he won't bless a dirty life because he doesn't want to glorify sin, then he will only bless a consecrated life because he wants to glorify himself. The reason he said put away all these other gods is he didn't want them getting up the next day and saying, boy, isn't it good how Astaroth delivered us yesterday? He didn't want them getting up and saying, boy, aren't you glad that Baal saved us in the battle yesterday? He wanted them to defile and desecrate every one of them pagan gods, cast them over into the ditch, burn them with fire, treat them as cruelly as he could. That way the next day when God give them victory, they'd know it wasn't them pagan gods. If them pagan gods was real, they would have smote us and destroyed us. It must be the God of Israel is real because we turned our hearts to Him and He saved us this day. 
The reason He wants you to consecrate your life unto Him is because it will make you keenly aware when He answers that it's been Him that's answered. And that will strengthen and bolster your faith in Him. So there must be consecration. Look down at verse number 5. The Bible says this, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day. Now, far as I know, and a, a better student of the Bible than me can probably correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I don't know of this really fulfilling any stated, mandated ceremony in the Bible. I don't know of any time that God says, if the nation sin, they need to gather together and draw out water and pour it out unto the Lord. But it's obvious what they're doing here is this is a picture of them pouring out their life Pouring out their, their, their life unto the Lord. Exposing their life unto Him. Taking their life and putting it in God's hands. So they poured this water out before the Lord. They fasted on that day. And this is what they said. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Let me say, not only must there be cleansing and there must be, there be consecration. Let me say, if we want the Lord's help, there must be confession. Confession. Now, let me be very clear here. Nowhere in the Bible are you ever commanded to confess your sins to a human being. We're told to confess our faults one to another, that you may be healed. But we're never told to confess our sins unto another human being. That is wholly uh, out of of, uh, the imagination of mankind. Uh, The Catholic Church didn't get out of the Bible because it ain't in the Bible. There ain't ain't a shred of anything biblical about it. Uh, We have a high priest which is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't need a human priest because I've got a holy high priest. Uh, and you say, well, preacher, what about the daily maintenance of your life? Well, the Bible says that He's made us as believers priests unto God. He's inducted us into the, what the Bible uh, terminology is, is the priesthood of the believers. We are now have the ability to approach God and worship God through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need a human priest to help us do that. But can I remind you of something? They didn't pour out water unto each other. They didn't pour out water unto Samuel. They poured it out to the Lord. When they said, we have sinned, they didn't say we've sinned against our brother, although undoubtedly they had. They said we've sinned against the Lord. In other words, the confession that needs to take place is not a confession of your sins to me. Can I just be honest with you? If you've been in, if you've been in the mess, I don't necessarily want to hear about it. I mean, unless you just need for me to be a blessing and encourage you, uh, you you don't have to. You know, Uh, the reason I say that is because sometimes people feel as though they 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 have to tell it to me. If you feel like you need to, that that's fine. I I guess I'll listen. But to be honest, you don't want to know everything I've been up to. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, So the reason I say that, and and I'm trying to be careful. I don't want you to to take what I'm saying the wrong way. I don't mind if people share their burdens and things that trouble them. But I'm saying this, I can't make you right with God, but I know a man who can. The Lord can. And the confession that needs to take place in our life is not to me, it's not to another. We may need to fix something if we've wronged someone or done aught with them, but the confession that needs to take place in our life is a confession to the Lord. That's what they were doing. They were telling God. And the Bible says that Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. In other words, he dispensed. He looked at these issues and dispense judgment concerning them. I'd say this, we're never going to get help from God if we won't get honest with God about our life. So often we want help from the Lord, but we don't want to get honest with God. We don't want to tell God the truth about it. You know, in the New Testament, you've heard this your whole life, and I have too. It's true, by the way, that 
But when the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, the word confess there means to agree with God about something. And what it means is to say, now Lord, You said this thing is sin, and I'm going to admit that You're right and I'm wrong, and I'm going to acknowledge that before You. Why is that so important? Because so often we give cover to our sin. So often we uh, neglect to treat our sin in the way that God treats our sin. And so often, listen, sin is a dangerous thing, my friend. If we won't, listen, if we won't shine a light on it in our life, if we won't be honest with God about it, our flesh will take that thing, uh, stuck it back somewhere under the living room rug, somewhere where it can be pulled out again and used against us once again. We're only going to move forward in our walk with God if we'll get honest with Him about it. I would say there must be confession. Look down at verse number 8. The Bible says this in verse 8, The children of Israel said unto Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that He will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Now stop and think about what's happened in this moment. And let me just... This is the bridge to the song. All right, We're going to take an aside for just a moment here. Isn't it interesting that in verse 7... When the Philistines hear that they have gathered together to Mizpah to make confession and to get right with God, it riles the Philistines up and they come and chase after the children of Israel. In other words, when they started getting right with God, it stirred the adversary up. And I say in your life and mine, we start getting right with God, it shouldn't surprise us when the devil gets stirred up. He will. He don't like that. He don't like when we're getting right with God. He don't like when we're living right for God. He don't like when we're doing those things. So don't be surprised if you start getting serious with God if the devil starts getting serious with you. That's common course throughout the history of the Word of God, throughout the testimony and witness of it. But notice what they did. Here's what they could have done. They could have said, well, look where serving God got us. They could have said, well, everything was going better before I got right with God. Now everything's falling to pieces. But instead, you know what they did? I like this. They doubled down. They turned and looked at Samuel and said, Samuel, don't quit praying for us. Don't quit praying for us. The enemy's approaching. God's got to deliver. Don't quit praying for us. They didn't back up. They didn't cut and run. They doubled down. And they dug in. And they said, we are committed to see God deliver us this day. I'd say this, there must be consistency in our life if we want the Lord to help us. So often, you know, as I said a moment ago, God's trying in our life to develop us more into the image of Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We live in a day where modern superficial Christianity has made the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus whatever temporal superficial thing that we desire at the moment. And people use that verse and twist it and abuse it try to make it seem like that means getting a promotion at work or that means getting a new car or that means getting clarity of mind or whatever it might be. Uh, But Paul's very clear about what the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is. Uh, That it is that we might have the righteousness of Christ exhibited through our life. That we might be so dead to self that when men see our life, they see only the life of Christ in us. The consummation of that, he goes on to say that one day our vile bodies will be made like in His glorious body. He goes on to describe how that one day we'll be transformed into His image. But here's what Paul said about it. He said, not as though I were already perfect, either had already attained, but I follow after. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, one day God's going to make me just like Jesus. But he says, I'm not waiting until that day to start trying to be like Jesus. And he says, now I'll admit that I'm not perfect at being like Jesus, but at least I'm trying to be like Jesus. 
says, I'm doing it imperfectly, but I am striving to be like Him. And I'm not just sitting around on my hands saying, well, bless the Lord, one day I'll have perfection and then I won't have to worry about it. He's saying, in my life, I'm striving to be more like Jesus Christ. So here's what God's trying to do in your life and mine. His will, His desire is to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Everything He does in our life is to that end. That the image of Christ might be transfixed and transferred into our life. And that when men see us, they'd see Jesus Christ and not see us and ourselves. So if that's what God is doing, can I just suggest this? There are times in our life where we've got to... The Bible says to let patience have her perfect work. There are times in our life that as God is seeking to teach us those lessons, if we are not consistent, those lessons become lost on us. It becomes a big jumbled mess of questions about what God's trying to do in our life. Here's an example. We're living for the Lord. We're doing right. God brings some sort of testing and trial into our life to refine us, to strengthen our faith. If we stay the course and keep living for God, then as we come out the other side of that storm, we can say with boldness, look what God has done in our life. But if immediately we cut and run, get discouraged, go out and live in sin, abandon God, then we are always and forever going to look back on that and say that was the chastening of the Lord. It might have been the chastening of the Lord. Or it might have been God trying to grow you and develop you in your walk with Him. And I'm not saying it can't be both. But what I'm saying is if we don't exhibit some kind of consistency in our life, what God's doing in our life becomes a big jumbled mess. It becomes a thousand threads that we're trying to untangle and figuring out what God is doing in our life. And the message of God's working becomes lost to our understanding. But if we'll stay consistent, what we'll see is God teaching us, growing us, showing us things developing us in our walk with Him day by day. And therefore, when there's no consistency, here's what happens. We short-circuit the reason for which God gives us help and blesses us. The reason He's doing it is to make us more like Jesus Christ. If there's no way for Him to make us more like Jesus Christ, we have removed any reason for Him to help us apart from His mercy and loving kindness. Now, I'm not saying God in His loving kindness don't still help us. But I'm saying if we want the Lord's help in our life, We've got to have the consistency that provides a canvas for which God can paint portraits of Christ on in our lives. I would say there has to be consistency. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, look at verse 11. The Bible says this, The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. I would say there has to be consistency. But number five, there's got to be commitment in our life. Commitment. Here's where most of us would have been. We would have watched them hightail it down the valley and said, Praise the Lord! The battle is won. But the battle wasn't won yet. They still had to follow after Him. They still had to pursue after Him. They still had to seek after Him. If they were unwilling to do that, you know what would have happened? The enemy would have redoubled their efforts. They would have rallied and they would have come back. In other words, if they wanted the Lord's help to be a lasting thing, they had to do their part in maintaining pursuit after the enemy. If we want the Lord's help, you know what would have happened, right? If they had not pursued after Him, the Philistines would have come back and tore that monument down, as we're seeing done all over our country today. They would have come back and been offended and torn that monument down, and that monument wouldn't have lasted. It lasted only because of the follow-up that the children of Israel did in their life. Too often, you know what I do? I don't know if you're like this. You're probably not. But I'll tell you, I'm like this. Too often, I get in a mess. I cry unto the Lord. Lord, I need help. And God helps. 
And man, I am, I am, my heart is set on the Lord until about two seconds after the danger has passed. Then all of a sudden, my mind and heart are somewhere else. And we wonder why it is in our life that we struggle to have these monuments in our life, these testimonies to the strength and help of God. Could it be because that thing never is allowed any life beyond the moment of crisis? We never follow up and pursue any further. It's like trying to push a rock up a hill. The only trouble is you're only going to get that rock up the hill if after every time you stop pushing, it's a little further than it was before. So many of us, we're still trying to push that same rock up that same hill. And the reason is because as soon as the hand of God came along and helped us, we quit pushing, quit trying, and tried to let God do all the work. And God's capable. God's able to do all the work. But His desire is not merely that He lived the Christian life for you. His desire is that He lived the Christian life through you. God could have, the moment you got born again, took you home to glory and checked you out of this whole process. But He left you here that you might be a light and a witness of the life of Christ through your life. And guess what that involves? It involves your participation. It's not a passive thing. Now, I'm not saying it requires your power or, or your talent or your intuition, but it does require your participation. A servant is not going to be... Have you ever... Have you ever I've known lots of these people in my life, uh, hypothetical servants. Everybody will be a hypothetical servant, won't they? Uh, just like, uh, you know, you ever hypothetically mowed your yard? I've, I've done that a few times. You know what that is? That's looking out the door and saying, I soul it's hot out there. Have you ever noticed that how bothered you are by the shape of your yard is directly related to the temperature, whatever it is? And, uh, you know, uh, so let me just say it this way. A hypothetical servant don't do no good. Some of us, we are servant in name. We are disciple in name. We are follower in name. But it was never followers in name that Christ was interested in. It was always those that would do the will of His Father. It was always those that would take up their cross and follow Him. In fact, there were many in His day that came to Him and spoke with their lips that they wanted to serve Him. But the moment that He demanded anything from them, they turned and they walked away. Three men in a row in Luke chapter number 9 that all come to Him and say, Lord, we want to follow You, but let me first do this, let me first do this, let me first do this. And Christ says, you do as you please. I'm not making you follow me, but if you do follow me, this is what it's going to cost you. And so they were called to participate in this life of discipleship, this life of crucified self. And in our life, if we want God's help in the way that we need God's help, it don't require our strength or our smarts or our ability or our beauty. But what it does require is our participation. We have to do what God commands us to do. So in our life, I want the Lord to help us. I do. I want Him to help you. I want Him to help me. I need the Lord's help. But I also recognize that if I want the Lord to help me, there's times I'm going to have to help the Lord help me by allowing Him to work in my life in a productive way that brings Him glory. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God spoke to your heart, you ought to find a place down here and you ought to speak to Him. You ought to bow your head and heart before Him and say, Lord, this, this is my life. Pour your heart out unto Him like the children of Israel did that water. Say, Lord, here I am. I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. Lord, I need your help. And then ask Him this. Lord, how can I help you help me? What can I do to allow you to work in my life in a meaningful way? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.